Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. I am so excited for today's episode. And I know I always say that, but I am really, really excited for today's episode because I have a very special guest, Claire Tuning, who is a dietitian and the first dietitian I have actually had on this podcast. So thank you so much for being here, Claire. Well, thank you, Jessica, for having me. I did not know I was going to have the pleasure of being the first dietitian, but I'm honored. I'm really excited to be here. So do you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? Of course. So as you said, my name is Claire Tuning. Uh, I am a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor. I always call myself a, a peanut butter and jelly and food pun enthusiast. Anyone who is familiar with my work, any of my content, you may know that my business name is actually a pun on my last name. So if that doesn't tell you how much I love puns and wordplay, I don't know what will. Um, But I, you know, my day job being a registered dietitian, I work virtually with individuals from all over the United States who are really wanting to heal from chronic dieting and disordered eating behaviors. And I help them through the intuitive eating framework. So it's really, really wonderful to be able to work with people and kind of show them a different side to nutrition professionals. You know, I've seen so many people who come to me and especially after our first session, it's different than what they would expect because a lot of interactions that they've had with dietitians in the past, it's been very eat this, not that, or good food, bad food, or they felt a lot of shame coming out of that interaction. So it's so cool to be able to talk with people about food and their relationships with food in a open and in an inviting way where there isn't a ton of shame and guilt involved because anything that we do multiple times daily for the rest of our lives, I feel like we should try our best to, to learn how to have a positive relationship with that. So that's what I do. Awesome. And I love that explanation. And to the listeners, before we hit record, I told Claire, like I literally had to write her name down to read it because her whole brand is a pun of her last name. And I was like, I'm going to screw this up if I don't write it down and read it. So, well, you, you did it beautifully. I've actually, um, I've had people before message me, like I've gotten honest DMS of people being like, what's your real last name? I like tuning is my real last name. Like they think it's a bit like they think I've made it up to go along with the brand, but, uh, no, no, it's, it's very real. <laughs> I mean, it, it works out. Maybe you were destined to become a dietitian. That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> so speaking of that, do you mind sharing a little bit about your journey to becoming a dietitian? Totally. I, uh, 
I love getting the opportunity to to share a little bit of this story because it has a couple couple twists and turns, but I'll try to give you the SparkNotes version. So I feel very privileged to have grown up in a household where I was shown a really positive relationship with food from the get-go. In fact, my dad is an incredible cook. He was always the cook of the family. My mom was more of the baker. And very early on in life, I gravitated more towards the cooking because there are less rules with cooking, right? You can just kind of cook to taste. A couple of times I've tried to bake to taste and it has not gone well for me. I'm not a rule follower when it comes to baking. You're laughing. I've just had like many a cookies turn out like hard little pucks did not go well. (laughs) I'm just trying to figure out how you try to bake to taste because you have to bake it after or like you can't taste it before you bake it. Yeah. I don't get to taste the batter, but like with baking, it's such a specific science of like, you have to have the exact ingredients for it to get the lift and for it to rise and do all the things. So long story short, I took a liking early on to food specifically when it came to cooking. And my dad always had the patience, Lord bless him, like me to be in there doing things with them. So from an early age, I had a relationship with food where I was not only an adventurous eater and I would try a lot of things, but I got to see the creative side of food and how it could be something that would bring people together. And yeah, it's something that fuels the body, but it's also something that's more than that. So I kind of got up into the point in high school where people start asking you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Cause you know, at the ripe age of 13, you definitely know the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, I knew that I wanted to do something related to food. And I learned around that time that a dietitian was a thing that existed, being a registered dietitian. And that sounded a little bit more exciting to me than going the chef route because I was interested in the science and the nutrition part and getting to work with people and relay the information about how food works in the body and how it works to fuel. So I was really interested in the nutrition side. So I get to college. I'm wearing my college shirt right now. Go Dukes, JMU. I know you have a connection there. Um, But I get to college and I start taking all of these nutrition classes. And unfortunately, when I was in school, and I think coursework is getting a little bit better these days, but it was very weight centric. My coursework, it was really kind of representing nutrition as a good food, bad food, very black and white, not a lot of gray area. And I kind of started to get this impression that if I was going to be a nutrition professional, then I had to be the perfect eater. And I'm putting that in heavy air quotes because there is no such thing as a perfect eater, but that's the impression that I got early on, that if anyone was going to trust me as a professional, I had to eat perfectly. So as you maybe could imagine, my own relationship with food that was once very healthy and very flexible and very free in a lot of ways took a turn to be more rigid, more restrictive in a lot of ways. And that continued for a few years until in my final year of schooling. So for dietitians, maybe it's similar in in your field as well, but we have to do, they call it an internship year. It's kind of like a residency, right? Where you're put in all these different settings where dietitians can work. And I learned a lot in that year. And right in the middle of that year, I came across the very first edition of the intuitive eating book. Now, if anyone has ever seen this book, 
It's straight out of the nineties. It's like red and blue. It, it, if you're a fan of saved by the bell, Oh, the show. I grew up watching Saved by the Bell. I love Saved by the Bell. And the cover of the book looks a lot like that. Again, the first edition, but all these bright colors like jumped off the shelf at the library. And I thought, you know, this could be a a useful thing to read. So I took it home. I read the book and immediately I, it was kind of representing this idea of food that reminded me a lot of the relationship with food I had as a kid that got me interested in dietetics in the first place, right? It was all about connecting to body cues and finding satisfaction and pleasure in eating. And in that moment, I kind of knew that I not only needed this to help me in my own relationship with food, but whatever I ended up doing as a dietitian, I wanted to do this intuitive eating thing because I did not want to do harm in anyone's relationship with food, kind of to the same level that I felt happened to me when I was in school. So that's a little spark notes version of where I got to where I am. But that intuitive eating book, if anyone is like, I want to read that, what is that called? It's intuitive eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And now they're on the fourth edition. So the cover looks much more updated. now. (laughs) I love it. And I mean, we'll be talking about intuitive Mm -hmm. eating today. So, and you kind of answered some of the questions I was going to ask you in your story. So thank you so much for Mm -hmm. um, sharing that. I did have one more question before we jump into intuitive eating specifically. And I know you kind of touched on this when like introducing about what you do, but is there like a specific clinical population within your work as a dietitian that you like to work with like certain age range, gender, or I guess anyone. And then you found a theme among your clientele. Yeah, I guess it's been a little bit more of the latter. I, my practice has really been open to anyone and everyone who is interested in healing their relationship with food. Um, In the almost four years now that I've been in business for myself doing this, I have definitely seen, seen a theme emerging in individuals who I work with. Um, So most often I see women uh, usually between the ages of 18 to 36, 37, somewhere in there. Um, Of course, there are outliers. I work with people of all ages, of all genders, all of the above, but that is typically the main theme. And a lot of the people who are coming to me, and I think a lot of the people who find intuitive eating as a whole to be really comforting and really inviting are people who have dieted for a long time, people who maybe have a history of an eating disorder or who have struggled with disordered eating behaviors. And they really find the intuitive eating framework and the guiding principles to be really refreshing and to describe food in a way that helps them heal. But yeah, that's kind of the theme that I see. I love it. I love it. So I guess going into the bulk of our conversation, since we are going to discuss intuitive eating, can you describe to listeners what intuitive eating is? And I've recognized that as probably a loaded question. (laughs) It's a, it's a big one. It's a big one for sure. But I have a couple of different ways, or I guess this definition has a few different layers to it. So intuitive eating is a health at every size aligned framework with 10 guiding principles and 
all of these principles are research informed as well. So I like to be clear that even though some points of it might sound a little bit like what we would call woo woo, right? They connect to your body, all of that. There is a growing body of research that talks about, you know, interceptive awareness, this idea of connecting to our body and its signals and the long-term health impacts and implications of being able to do that. Um, so again, health at every size aligned, research informed 10 guiding principles, and it really helps individuals to heal from patterns of chronic dieting, disordered eating, and the whole goal, if we could even frame it of intuitive eating is to help the individual reconnect to cues around food, body, and eating so that they can regain confidence in their ability to nourish themselves, to eat a variety of foods, to eat adequately so that we can live a life that goes beyond fixating on food. Um, I could go a lot deeper on all of those definitions, but I'll leave it at, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> I loved it. That was a beautiful definition. And I can't remember where I heard it. This was a while ago, but somebody that I follow on social media or heard it somewhere talked about how like intuitive eating is like going back to childhood because like mm -hmm. children and babies eat intuitively. <laughs> they cry when they're hungry. And I can speak because I have a, well, I guess by the time this comes out, she will be a year old, which is weird, but 11 month uh -huh. old. Um, yeah. Cries when she's hungry, gets food, stops when she's done and yeah. just listens to body cues. And over time, as we grow older, we're taught whether by society or other things to not listen to that. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. The parallels between intuitive eating and observing a child who eats. It's, it's interesting as well in my own story. You'll remember I shared when I got the book, it immediately reminded me of the relationship with food that I had as a kid. And a lot of us, you know, can start off this way and there's nuance there as well, right? For example, if someone experiences food insecurity, of course, that's going to tamper with those abilities to eat intuitively. But, you know, if you take a child that has access to food that is in an environment that's inviting and comfortable, right? They're going to moderate their intake based on what they need for growth at any life stage. And it's not that we lose that ability as we age, but we start to become aware of influences around us that tell us otherwise that say, eat less, move more, or that say, oh, you shouldn't be eating that food you really want to eat that, right? There's so many pressures coming from all angles. Like you said, whether it's society, family, well-meaning friends and loved ones that can really kind of get into our minds and interfere with our ability to connect and make decisions around food based off of those cues. You said it so much more eloquently <laughs> than I did. Um, so a few minutes ago, you mentioned the 10 guiding principles of mm -hmm. intuitive eating. Um, so I was wondering if you can like highlight some of them. I'm not going to make you go through all of them, whether it's like some of your favorite ones or ones that you feel like are most important or key. I don't know if you can really rank because all 10 have a purpose, but huh? any ones you want to talk about. 
Totally. You're going to quiz me. I'll list out all 10. No, just kidding. I know that's not the question, but it's like, let me put my quiz hat on. Um, well, the, the best way that I can start to, to offer an answer to this question is by describing how the principles work, so to speak. So they work in one of two ways. The first way that they work is by um, removing any barriers that we might face to bodily connection. So an example of this might be uh, quieting the volume on our food police voice, right? Because that is a barrier for you to connect to those cues. So that is one of the ways that they work. They help us work through any of the challenges and barriers that prevent us from connecting to our body. The second way they work is by helping us to foster a sense of connection between like brain and body cues. So some principles that fall underneath this category would be honor your hunger or feel your fullness or finding the satisfaction factor, like all of these things that can be felt in either a body or a mental cue. I know you and I talked on my podcast about the mental cues. It all comes back around, um, but that foster that sense of connection between us and our body. So that kind of gives you an overview of the two categories, if you will. But I have to say, if I had to choose a favorite now, all of the principles are important. We need to work on them all at some point throughout the process of healing one's relationship to food. But one of my favorites is, I believe it's principle three. I might have the number wrong. It's somewhere there in the beginning, but it's called, um, it's something along the lines of offering yourself unconditional permission to eat. I believe the actual principle is phrased, make peace with food. And in making peace with food, one of the first steps that we need to take is learning how to offer that sense of permission because having permission around food, especially if it's one of those previously off limits foods or those foods we once labeled as bad, having permission can change how an eating experience feels entirely. Um, I like to use an example of lending a friend a sweater or like lending a friend a piece of clothing, right? If I go to my best friend right now and I say, hmm, like I have a date, I would really like to wear the sweater that you have. Can I borrow it? She'll be like, yeah, sure, right? So I'll go out on my date and I'll have a great time. And I won't even really be thinking about the sweater because I'm allowed to be wearing it and I know it was okay with her. But let's take the flip side of that situation where I know she's not okay with it, but I sneak into her closet anyways, and I steal the sweater. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, Jessica, I promise. Um, but I steal the sweater and I wear it on my date. And the whole time I'm with my date, I can't be present in the moment because I'm so worried about spilling my daiquiri on this sweater. I don't know whatever I would be drinking. Um, but the parallel there goes when we have permission around a certain food, it really frees us up to connect to the experience, to be there in the moment, to figure out how is this making me feel? Am I enjoying this? What are my body cues? Rather than saying, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm doing a bad thing, right? That puts us so in our head and it disconnects us from our body that the feeling of honoring a fullness cue feels so foreign because we're not connected to the experience. So I hope I wasn't too off base with that analogy, but one of my favorite principles is the, the make peace with food through permission. I think that one's really important. No, your analogy made 
Perfect sense. I, <laughs> I just, I was like, where I was more laughing because I was like envisioning you like sneaking in. And I don't know what your best friend looks like, but like sneaking into her closet. <laughs> like, da-da, da-da, da-da. <laughs> exactly. Music, yeah. no, but I love that analogy and the fact, like going back to the sweater analogy, like you're hyper focused on the sweater. Like, and I think of, and so I should have mentioned this earlier. Claire and I recorded for her podcast earlier today. So we are spending so much time together today. Um, but I work with a lot of eating disorders and we talk about like, if foods are labeled as bad or off limits, then you hyper-focus on those foods mm-hmm. and you think about them more. And then oftentimes we see individuals then binge on those food. And it goes back to all or nothing thinking, which we also talked about on your podcast. Like I can't have it. I can't have it. I can't have it. And then you have all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what was coming to mind when you were um, talking just like that hyper fixation on food or whatever it is that is bad. That is in quotes, everybody off limits. And yeah, then you're not present and you're not enjoying the experience of yeah. just allowing yourself to, to be. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, the whole thing with that principle I was highlighting, the more permission we have, the less fixation on that food we experience. And it's probably not going to feel that way. The first time that you're letting back in one of these previous off limits foods, but with repeated exposure, we call this food habituation, right? Like the more we have access, the more we have permission, the more normalized that experience becomes over time. And the more we're able to connect to our body throughout that experience. So absolutely. It all ties in. So the next thing I want to ask you, which I'm really interested in hearing from you is what are some misconceptions that people have about intuitive eating? Cause I know there has to be a lot of them out there. <laughs> what, what are some that you've begin? heard? Yeah. Where to begin with this? Uh, Man, there are, there are many, but if I had to choose one to start with, I was actually looking at Instagram before I came on to record because what else would I have been doing? And I saw a fellow dietitian who works in this field also talking about this. I feel like it's a pretty universal experience for dietitians who work in this field to get this question or this piece of feedback. So one of the main messages that a lot of us dietitians like to share when it comes to intuitive eating is this idea of eating all foods, right? Eating a variety of foods, making peace with food, like I was just talking about. And a lot of individuals will hear that message of all foods fit or all foods are allowed. And immediately we take that and we jump to oh my gosh, are you just telling people to eat only insert fear food here? So like only hot dogs, only pizza, only burgers, only cookies, only cake all day long. And I want to hold a lot of like space and compassion and understanding for individuals who feel like they need to make that jump because that's typically happening for a reason, right? If we look at how a lot of us are trained to think about food, If we are thinking about it in that good food, bad food paradigm, we are taught that if we don't have rules around food, if we don't have restrictions, then all you are going to eat are all of the quote unquote bad foods. Mm -hmm. And that's why you can't be trusted. And that's, I mean, we could have a whole episode on the diet cycle, right? That's how the cycle keeps you coming back because it's, you have this rule inevitably 
you break the rule because it's not sustainable. You have guilt, you have shame, and then we're back at square one. So again, I want to normalize why that fear exists of if I don't have rules, I would only eat X, Y, and Z food. And I will come back to the message that started this whole part of the conversation. I said, we talk about eating a variety of foods, having permission around food. If we look at what that really means, it really means eating all foods, Mm -hmm. right? It means eating the fun foods. It means eating a variety of nutrient dense foods as well that you enjoy, that you have access to. But one common theme that we're looking for in this is doing this in a way that makes us feel satisfied and also doing this in a way where we're paying attention to how is this food making me feel? Do I feel pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral afterwards, right? So, and I want to recognize as well that this is a process and it takes time to feel like you can be at a place where you're eating all of these foods, right? And they can all exist and have a place in your life. There might be a time especially in the beginning when you're loosening your grip, when we're letting go of some of these rules, there might be a time where food feels kind of out of control. Things feel chaotic. It only makes sense that it would happen that way, right? Like if you haven't had access to these things, it makes sense that we swing in the opposite direction. But what we find, again, this ties into what I was saying earlier with repeated exposure and repeated permission that you're offering yourselves around these foods we do find a balance and a mixture of all foods in life. Does that make sense? That's a really common misconception that I see. No, it does. And I'm glad that you led with that because that is something I have seen, not being a dietitian, but working like with eating disorders and working with dietitians is that people fear that, oh, if I do this intuitive eating thing, um, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to eat cake and candy and all of the quote unquote bad foods all the time. And as you were talking, like something that kept coming up for me is I wonder if a lot of people hold that fear because of what you were talking about earlier, not being in tune with your body. So they fear like, okay, I'm only going to crave sweet things, carbs. And I want to make the clarification. None of these things are, are, are bad, but in reality, at least, and I can only speak from my experience, like if I eat a lot of like sugary carb foods for a couple of days, I'm craving vegetables and fruits and like a variety going back to all foods. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, and this is more of an exploratory, you don't necessarily have to mm-hmm. answer if some of that goes back to not trusting themselves and not being in tune with their body. So they jump to, well, I'm just obviously going to crave X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Absolutely. And I find that a lot of it too, the individuals who do feel like they're jumping to that, well, if I had no rules, I would only be eating X, Y, and Z fear food or quote unquote junk food, whatever we want to call it. I find a lot of the time people who are making that assumption or jumping to that conclusion, they have probably had a time in their life when that has felt very true. Because again, if we look at the dieting cycle, you are existing around certain foods and you're not supposed to eat certain foods and this is bad, but we know that's not sustainable and that can only last for a certain period of time. So a lot of people can probably identify a time in their life when they weren't 
on a quote unquote diet. And maybe in that period of time, their eating did feel really out of control, or they did only want to eat those highly palatable foods. And oftentimes the reason why that is happening in the stint between diets, right? In the, between the moment of saying, F it, this is awful. I never want to do this again. And then oh my gosh, I need to get back on another diet. Like in the time in between those two self-conversations, it probably is going to feel out of control because that whole time of restricting yourself, you've probably been fixating on Mm -hmm. those foods that you've been telling yourself you can't have. Not to mention, depending on what diet, dare I say, nearly all diets encourage under eating. So -hmm. if you haven't been eating enough, and you've been restricting these foods that you really enjoy and you love, it makes total sense why in that period of time in between diets, it is going to feel like a free-for-all and you are going to feel out of control because that is how the body responds to not having enough food, A, and B, not having access to those things that you enjoy and you miss. So if that feels really true for you, it's probably because You've had a time in your life where that has been true, but something that I say with intuitive eating, we talk about the last supper mentality a lot. I don't know if this is something that you've covered on the podcast before, but the whole last supper eating happens a lot when we have a looming start date of a diet, right? If I had in my mind, I'm starting X diet tomorrow morning that doesn't allow carbohydrates, for example, then tonight you best believe I'm going up to my pantry and I'm going to have a heyday with all of the carbs because in my mind, I'm telling myself, well, tomorrow I can't have these tomorrow. These are off limits. So right now is the last supper. I have to get it all in right now, but with intuitive eating, since we're allowing all foods at all times, right. In accordance with body cues and what sounds good, since there is no off limits or bad foods. There's no start date to the diet. You can have an eating experience where you're there enjoying the food. You feel a fullness cue pop up and we say, Oh, okay. I feel okay right now. If there's more still left, I can save it for 30 minutes from now, tomorrow, the next day, there is no last supper. So it takes a little bit of pressure off of the eating too. I love that. Thank you for covering that. Um, cause I have not covered that on the podcast. There we go. And so I, I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, any other misconceptions you want to cover before I dive into the next thing I want to ask you? Oh, other misconceptions. I feel like we just covered a whole heck of a lot. I mean, to be honest, I hear a lot of them, but I feel like many of them can be summed up in what if I never stop eating or what if I only eat X, Y, and Z food? So I would probably have another one, but none come to mind at this moment. I'll I'll circle back with me. I might have another one by the end. Okay. No problem. I just wanted to make sure you covered all the ones Mm -hmm. you wanted to talk about. So obviously this podcast is psych talk. It's about mental health. You are not a mental health clinician, but you're a dietitian. And I am sure within your work, you observe a variety of different um, mental health states uh, as the individual is going through intuitive eating. So from your perspective, can you discuss how you feel like adopting an intuitive eating approach 
uh, benefits mental health over say a restrictive diet? Where do I begin? (laughs) Yet again, I say something that I say really often, and maybe this is also represented in your work too, but something that I say is we cannot separate our eating from our mental health, or we cannot separate our physical health from our mental health because it's all one and the same. And so often when we look at traditional diets, specifically bad diets or the ones that are hyper fixated on weight loss or cutting out an entire food group, even though these diets are presented as quote unquote healthy, oftentimes we find that engaging in the behaviors promoted by these diets in the long run come at the expense of our health, not only our physical health, but our mental health as well. You know, I have worked with many clients, you know, I told you earlier that I work with clients who are wanting to heal from chronic dieting and disordered eating and something that they share with me over and over. I guess this is another pattern that I see with my clients, but something they share with me over and over is that one of the things that has really suffered in their dieting endeavors is their mental health because so much of their time, so much of their energy, so much of their life has been wrapped up over the years of eat this, not that of fearing certain foods of not being able to be present in social interactions because we're so fearful of the food or being so uncomfortable after eating experiences that they start to resent food. They don't like it. Right. So I think it goes without saying that we cannot separate our relationship with food from our mental health. And if any of your listeners are maybe contemplating a diet right now, they're maybe on one or they have been in the past, I invite you to just take a couple of moments and consider if I am to continue these behaviors around food, where does that leave me mentally? right? Does that allow me to live my fullest life? Can I connect with those around me? Or am I going to be going to be spending so much more time and energy fixating on food than I feel like is healthy for me? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And as you were talking, so obviously I work with eating disorders. So, um, as one of the populations I work with. So it might not be exactly the same as the individuals that you see, but I talk with my clients a lot about the time and energy and mental capacity that is spent focused on food mm-hmm. and or body image and exercise, because I find that those are all intertwined. And one question I ask them a lot is what would you rather be thinking about? And the most often answer I get is literally anything else. But when we're in that chronic diet cycle, disordered eating, eating disorder, your whole world is wrapped up in food. You're Mm -hmm. worrying about what am I going to eat next? Oh, I got invited to go out to this dinner. Let me look at the menu. Can I do like, and most people would rather be thinking about literally anything else, unless you're thinking about food, like you're a chef or a dietitian, like, right. But so I want to make that, um, like clarification, but yeah. And then I I was reflecting as you were talking to like earlier, you used words such as like guilt and shame. And if we're feeling guilty or shameful over what we're eating, that doesn't feel good. And that's not going to benefit your mental health in any way either. 
Yeah, not at all. Um, the guilt and shame piece is real, right? The guilt piece being, I did something bad. The shame piece being, I am bad for eating this and how often we are taught to feel that way around eating things that we enjoy <laughs> and I know. pleasure in. And um, I think something too, as you were talking about the mental energy piece of it all, I've had a lot of clients describe to me one of their goals in our time together as a team is that they want food to be a part of their life, but they don't want food to be their whole entire life. You know, I, I tell my clients as well, we're never going to get to a point where we never think about food, hopefully, because we need food in order to exist mm -hmm. <laughs> and to survive and to thrive. So we have to have a certain part of our daily mental energy dedicated to making decisions about food. But there comes a point when that starts to eat away at, pun intended, when that starts to eat away at the whole pie chart of our mental energy, that's when it becomes problematic. And that's when we maybe need to assess who, what is my relationship with food looking like? And am I thinking about food more than I would like to? Um, and I think that's a good little litmus test. Is food a part of my life or is it taking up my whole entire life? Big difference there. Definitely. And another thing that just came to mind from something you said earlier, talking about like that diet cycle. And when you were explaining like the time in between, um, where people may feel out of control as well. One thing I've seen is people, and I would love to hear your experience or thoughts on this when they have quote unquote failed a diet. It's that's how they word it. I failed the diet, not the diet failed me, or there's something innately wrong with the diet. People take it upon themselves identifying themselves as a failure. There's something wrong with me. Why can't I do X, Y, or Z? And that's not good for your mental health either. If you go around thinking you're a failure, mm -hmm. you're not going to be happy <laughs> and love yourself and optimistic and all of those things. Yeah. I mean, if we think about the diet industry as a whole, not only is it worth many, 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 many billions of dollars, but you got to give them, you got to give them creds because they're good at marketing and rebranding, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the diet industry is really, I don't want to say the only industry, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but it's one of the only industries that can get away with selling an inherently flawed product or a program that was never going to work in the first place, right? This was never going to work. It was never going to be sustainable, but they'll still sell it to you. Yep. And then when it doesn't work, because it was never going to in the first place, they are so good at selling and rebranding that they then convince you that you are to blame for their product or their program's failure, right? Mm -hmm. It's really magical how that happens and not in a good way, yeah. <laughs> in a good way. but you're right. It's, it's not good for mental health because if you look at, you know, the people who I work with and maybe some of the individuals who you see as well, who have done this, this being like the dieting cycle for years and oftentimes even decades of their life, there is so much shame wrapped up in that. Something must be wrong with me. I have no willpower. I'm terrible. Everybody else seems to be doing this, but me. Side note, there are, there are many, many, many individuals who struggle in their relationship with food, right? So yeah. if everybody else seems easy breezy, 
might not always be that way, right? But we carry around so much of that guilt and shame that was never really yours to carry in the first place. Because like you said a moment ago, it's not your fault. The diet failed you, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. So I feel like we could talk about this for hours, (laughs) but I also want to be mindful of your time. And so I know you mentioned at the beginning that you found that beautifully colored book um, (laughs) in the library. Um, So if someone is listening and wants to start with intuitive eating or Mm -hmm. learn more, what advice would you give them? What would you encourage them to seek out, including that beautiful saved by the bell colored book. (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll start with the book and then we'll go from there because I find that if anyone is looking to start, especially if this is maybe the first time someone is hearing about intuitive eating, it's really helpful to just have information and to start to learn what is it? What is the science behind this? How it's different from dieting endeavors. So we'll start with the information piece. So the, the book that I'm referring to is called Intuitive Eating by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. Like I said earlier, the most recent edition, they're up to four now. So I highly recommend getting your mitts on the fourth edition if you can. Uh, that is the most updated with the research. They have more in there about weight stigma. They've updated their languaging a little bit, which I find is really important. So fourth edition. Um, There is also a workbook that goes along with the intuitive eating book. You can get it on Amazon, probably anywhere else where you get books, but the workbook is really great because it also goes through all of the 10 principles, but it breaks it down into smaller chunks. The book itself is great. Uh, It's a little bit science and research heavy. So if you're looking for kind of the spark notes version of each principle, along with some exercises or some worksheets to go through, that workbook is really great. Um, Other thing I would say is start to audit your social media feeds and fill those feeds with individuals who share not toxic messages about food. (laughs) So this could be dietitians, this could be mental health professionals like yourself, Obviously, if someone is listening to your podcast, they're probably on their way to doing just this. Um, If anyone's looking for specific resources or suggestions of people to follow, I have a highlight reel on my Instagram feed that is titled Other Resources. And I have a lot of books and I have a lot of other um, social media People, my words are people. There we go. Just people. People. Uh, Humans. Humans that create great content on intuitive eating. So you can check out that. Um, But I guess uh, one piece of advice, food for thought that I will offer in addition to all of this. Progress with this idea of improving your relationship with food. It isn't linear. Meaning... Every day might not feel like it's better than the last and better than the last, right? You might have some days where you feel really great and you feel connected to your body and you feel like you're turning down the volume on that food police. The next day might come along and things feel really tough and you might feel like you're taking steps back, but every experience we have is a learning opportunity especially when it comes to our food experiences. So progress isn't linear, but over time you will start to heal your relationship with food that way. So it takes patience. Yeah. 
I love that last uh, bit of advice. So as we are wrapping up, is there anything I have not asked you about that you would like to touch on that can be covered in a couple of minutes? Because I'm sure we could talk for, <laughs> for hours and hours, but anything like you didn't get to say that you really want listeners to know about intuitive eating or anything else we've discussed? Um, I think, I think we did a pretty thorough job on all things intuitive eating. The only final last thing I have to say, I'm a little disappointed. You didn't ask me about my peanut butter preference. If I'm a smooth or crunchy gal, I mean, as someone who dedicates a lot of her time and energy to talking about PB and J, I feel like I just have to throw this out there. I'm team crunchy all the way. Same. We have discovered (laughs) today. We are on the same wavelength for a lot of things. Yeah. I like to say that I, I don't like to yuck other people's yums, but if you like smooth peanut butter, we are just different. (laughs) I do not agree with you on that. That is a wrong opinion in my mind, but we'll let you have it. (laughs) I I am terribly sorry. I did not ask your peanut butter preference, but okay. I was asked all the other questions that were arguably more important than talking about my peanut butter preference. Yeah. Well, if I was going to say that's a good lead in though, because you talk about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches quite frequently on social media. So where can people connect with you and find, you know, that highlight reel you talked about of the Mm -hmm. um, humans, the people, the other (laughs) resources. Yeah. Um, That's a podcast, things like that. Totally. That's a great way to sandwich this into the conversation. <laughs> You're not going to make a third pun thing. you've been, you've done today. It's great. Listen, do I think in puns all the time? Absolutely. I do. Um, but where people can find me. So I hang out pretty often, just like yourself on Instagram and TikTok. Most often my handles there, it's just my name. So at Claire tuning all together, all lowercase, um, that is where you will find that resources highlight reel. I have other stuff about working with me. I have an online course. My podcast for any podcast listeners out there is the yours truly podcast. I will have our episode of the show coming out right around the same time Mm -hmm. that I think this is going to release. So if you all want to hear, we talked about different things for sure, but if you want to hear the same humans in a different role, me interviewing Jessica, then come check us out the yours truly podcast. And I think that's about all I have going on. Hit me up on social. I'd be happy to connect with any of your listeners. Awesome. And Claire, thank you so much for joining and having this conversation. I have so much fun just chatting with you and like I said earlier, I know we spent a lot of time together today doing two uh, recordings, but I am so thankful that we have connected and that you shared your knowledge with all of my listeners because this is something I'm interested in and I know other people that listen to this podcast are too. So I appreciate you taking your time to do this. Yeah. And I so appreciate you having me as we've been talking about. We cannot separate food and mental health. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> there we go. So I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on. And I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to, to stay in touch. Of course. And thank you all the listeners for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk. And I will catch you in the next episode. 
Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.